Psalm 44. <coughs> to the chief musician for the sons of Korah, Maskell. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what work thou didst in their days in the times of old. How thou didst drive out the heathen with thy hand and plantest them. How thou didst afflict the people and cast them out. For they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arm save them, but thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy countenance, because thou hadst a favor unto them. Thou art my king, O God. Command deliverances for Jacob. Through thee will we push down our enemies. Through thy name will we tread them under that rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, neither shall my sword save me. But thou hast saved us from our enemies and hast put them to shame that hated us. In God we boast all the day long and praise thy name forever, Selah. But thou hast cast off and put us to shame, and goest not forth with our armies. Thou makest us to turn back from the enemy, and they which hate us spoil for themselves. Thou hast given us like sheep appointed for meat, and hast scattered us among the heathen. Thou sellest thy people for naught, and dost not increase thy wealth by their price. Thou makest us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to them, that are round about us. Thou makest us a byword among the heathen, a shaking of the head among the people. My confusion is continually before me, and the shame of my face hath covered me. For the voice of him that reproacheth and blasphemeth by reason of the enemy and avenger. All this has come upon us, yet have we not forgotten thee, neither have we dealt falsely in thy covenant. Our heart has not turned back, neither have our steps declined from thy way. Though thou hast sore broken us in the place of dragons and covered us with the shadow of death, if we have forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a strange God, shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. Yea, for thy sake are we killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Awake, why sleepest thou, O Lord? Arise, cast us not off forever. Wherefore hidest thou thy face, and forgettest our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly cleaveth unto the earth. Arise for our help, and redeem us for thy mercy's sake. Amen. And we know that the Lord will bless the reading of his word to our hearts for his dear name's sake. Tonight we're going to think about this prayer, and I've called it a prayer for national deliverance, because David here is praying for his nation, the psalmist rather, because we do not have an author for this psalm, but the psalmist is praying for the nation, and he is giving the people words they can use in public prayer as they seek God for their land in their day and generation. And here tonight, as we look at this psalm, I think that we are being taught by God how we can pray for our nation and for our country. So that's the, the theme tonight, how we can pray intelligently for our nation. And the first thing we see here about this prayer is that it is reflectful. The psalmist begins by looking back. 
And you look at verse 1 and how he begins. We have heard with our ears, O Lord. Our fathers have told us what work thou didst in their days, in the times of old. So he looks back at what God did in the past. And he recognizes that every blessing that Israel got, every triumph they got, every victory they got, every square inch of ground that they had in that land of promise was given to them as a result of God. This was what God had done. We have heard with our ears. How would they have known what God had done if the fathers hadn't told them? And so there is this sense of gratitude that our fathers told us what was done in the past. And they passed it to their sons, their sons passed it to their sons, to their sons, to their sons, until eventually we got this message in our day and generation, what God has done. He talks in detail about some of the things God did. In verse 2, he drove out the heathen with his hand and he planted them. And he's thinking here of how Joshua came in and the heathen were driven out. God planted Israel in the land. And he cast out the heathen. He afflicted them. He afflicted the Canaanites. He put them out. And then he says in verse 3, For they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arm save them. But thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy countenance, because thou hast a favor unto them. We are a people specially favored by God. That's what he was saying. So he looked back with a sense of praise and gratitude and thankfulness for what God had done. And he was very careful not to give the people themselves any praise or glory. This is what God did. And so there is this reflectful spirit that looks back, this spirit of thanksgiving. And it is a spirit of thanksgiving because he says in verse 8, and verse 8 is really the end of this section of the psalm, in God we boast all the day long and praise thy name forever. So even before he gets to praying for the situation in which he finds himself and Israel finds himself, herself in that generation, he says, we're going to take time and praise God for every blessing we have got has come from his hand. God has been gracious to us. And that teaches us that as we pray for our nation in this day and generation, we should begin by looking back and we should thank God for every blessing that our land has received from the hand of God. The value of looking back. This psalm begins with a look back. What our fathers have told us. What work thou didst in their days. And church history is really what our fathers have given us. What men of God have recorded and passed down from one generation to the next. But ultimately, church history is the study of what God has done in the past. Church history is a way of studying God the works of God in the history of the world, the works of God in the history of a nation, the works of God in the history of even a locality, what God has done in the past. And therefore, it's good to look back and reflect upon what God did. For example, we would not have a church here. We would not be here worshiping God. We would not have a gospel heritage to hand down to another generation if a generation in the past hadn't handed that down to us. 
And we are here with this gospel heritage because of God. And there are nations in the world that do not have a gospel heritage. There are nations in the world where people do not readily receive the gospel as we do. And what privileges we have had as a result of what God had done in the past. And I am convinced, if it were not for the great revivals that we have had in our nation in bygone days, we would not have a gospel heritage here at all. And so we must come to the Lord and be so grateful for what we have. Sometimes we get ourselves despondent because of all the evil that surrounds and the decline in, in the gospel, the decline in churches, the lack of souls being saved. These things can perplex us. But perhaps we need to be more positive and think about what we have and treasure what we have and pray that we might hold on to what we have. And we can only do that with a spirit of gratitude, thankfulness for what God has done before. And so, yes, we should listen with our ears to the things and, and read about the things that God has done in the past. So that's where this prayer begins. It begins with a reflectful spirit. And then this prayer is also remorseful because we come to verse 9 and the whole tone changes. He comes to the now, to where the nation was at this time. And he says in verse 9, But, but, thou hast cast off and put us to shame. There has been a change. But this change isn't the result of random forces at work. It's a result of God. And things weren't as he would have liked them to be as the man of God would have liked them to be. But he had to admit that things were as they were because of what God has done. And so just as God brought the people in, drove the heathen out, so God had permitted Israel to go into a period of decline, a military defeat. And he makes this very clear. You know, when you look at some of the the words that he uses, look at verse 9. Thou hast cast off and put us to shame. You've cast us off. You've put us to shame. You look at verse 10. Thou makest us to turn back from the enemy. Rather than defeating the enemy, we've had to turn back from the enemy. We've had to retreat. But Lord, you've done this. Thou hast given us like sheep appointed for meat. That would seem to refer to some kind of military disaster. We don't know what the exact circumstances were at the time of writing, but our soldiers have been like sheep appointed for meat. They've just been like sheep sent for the altar. And you've done this. You've allowed this to happen. You've scattered us among the heathen. Verse 11. Verse 12. Thou sellest thy people for naught. He says to God, you have actually sold your people. Thou makest us, in verse 13, a reproach among our neighbors, a scorn and derision to them that are round about us. Look at what he says in verse 14. Thou makest us a byword among the heathen, a shaking of the head among the people. They're all mocking us. 
because of the state that we're in. And so, there's this very realistic look at the troubles that Israel found herself in. But yet at the same time, it's not that he's accusing God. It's not that he's coming to God and saying, Lord, you're wrong in doing this. There's just that knowledge that God is a sovereign God and God has a reason in permitting this to happen. And as we look at the state that our land finds itself in in these days, we must always acknowledge the sovereignty of God. God has a purpose in every event that happens. He has either ordained it or he permits it to happen. And we cannot understand all of that. But yet there's a blessing there in that we're not exposed to the fury of hell and of Satan. For God's in control and God's on the throne. And that's something that should give us great heart and great encouragement. But furthermore, he enters into this remorse because he starts to ask a question. Why? Why? And he uses a very important word here in verse 15. It's the word confusion. My confusion is continually before me. He feels confused. And why does he feel confused? Because he cannot see the reason for it. He knows that God has a reason, but he can't see the reason. And we're often like that in life. We know what has happened, but we struggle with the reason. And he he says in, in verse 17, all this has come upon us, yet have we not forgotten thee? Neither have we dealt falsely with thy covenant. Our heart is not turned back. Neither have our steps declined from thy way. To me, this is not like what happened in the days of Daniel. Israel were defeated. They were cast out. They went as slaves to Babylon. Everyone knew the reason. There had been idolatry. And God's judgment had come. Jeremiah preached it. Ezekiel preached it. Judgment had come. Because the people had turned from God. But it seems to me that this event happened in a day when the nation had not turned from God. Our heart has not turned back. Neither have our steps declined from thy way. And yet God still allowed it to happen. Bad things do happen to good people. Even though we may be faithful to God, yet still terrible things occur. And we have to expect all of that. We have to expect the rough with the smooth in the journey through life. But as we look at the state our land finds itself in, we are clearer as to the reason. Because we often say that we are a land ripe for judgment. We're a nation ripe for judgment. And Britain certainly deserves to decline in the world because of the manner in which She has turned her back on the law of God and the gospel of Christ. And so there is that realistic sense in our heart, yes, we deserve judgment. And that's something that should cause us the deepest of concern. But this man who felt terribly broken, this man who felt covered with the shadow of death in verse 19, he asked God to search his heart. So although he said, 
we haven't dealt falsely with you. Our heart has not turned back. Yet at the same time, he said to God, in a very honest way, Lord, search my life and search for my sin. And if there be a wickedness in me, reveal it to me that I might see it. Do you see what he says in verse 20? If we have forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a false God, shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. Yea, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Lord, search out our sin. Find our sin. Discover our sin that we might deal with our sin, that we might put things right. And so at the very end of this section where he is remorseful, he comes to his own heart and to his own soul and to his own spirit. And he says, Lord, find my sin. Sometimes in our complaints about the sins of society around us, we forget to talk about our own sin. That's the hardest thing. The hardest thing of all is to face our own sin. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven. Then will I heal their land. And if we are to see our nation healed, then God needs to do a work in our hearts and in my heart. And in order for that to happen, God needs to show us our sin. And that's a hard prayer. An honest prayer, a truthful prayer. Because once God shows us our sin, then we need to do something about it. But the church would be revolutionized and a nation would be revolutionized when God's people turn from their sin. And so he prayed for God to search him out and uncover his sin that he might deal with us. And that's the kind of spirit we need. That's true praying, true, humble, Holy Ghost praying. That's the kinds of prayers that God will use. But there's one third thing about this prayer. So having got to the place where we're saying to God, look, deal with my sin, show me my sin, we then have his requests. He brings his requests before God. This is a requesting prayer. And it's interesting, you know, he has spent all of these words looking back, and then looking inward, and then finally the cry to God. We often start with the cry but the cry comes at the very end after he has asked for God to deal with him. He says in verse 23, Awake! Why sleepest thou, O Lord? Awake, arise! Cast us not off forever. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a powerful prayer, isn't it? Short on words, but deep in truth and full of passion. Awake! Arise! Verse 26, arise for our help and redeem us for thy mercy's sake. Yet it's a very bold prayer. Because he says, Lord, why are you sleeping? Why sleepest thou, O Lord? Arise, cast us not off forever. Now we, go, we know God doesn't sleep. God cannot sleep. <coughs> but as he felt, God wasn't acting. He wasn't acting on their behalf. He wasn't dealing with their enemies. And there is this sense here that God's honor was at stake because if he was the God of the covenant, if Israel were his people, therefore he must arise. So 
it wasn't that he was in any way accusing God of, 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 of sleeping in a, in a lazy way. He, he was calling for God to act in accordance with his covenant, in accordance with his promises, and treat his people as his people, and redeem them. And that's why he uses the word redeem in verse 26. Redeem is linked to the covenant of God. And God does have a covenant engagement with his people. And the covenant engagement is that he will pour water on him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. That's a promise that God has given to his people. That when we ask, we will receive. And when we ask for the Spirit of God, we will receive the Spirit of God. And therefore, we can invoke the honor of God. Lord, you're the king and head of your church. Can you leave us in this way? Can you abandon us? Can you not come and stir us and revive us for your name's sake, for your glory, for your honor? This prayer is full of the honor and glory of God. That was his, his interest. You know, look at the words he uses in verse 24. Wherefore hidest thou thy face and forgettest our affliction and our oppression? Lord, can you forget our afflictions? Can you... Can you close your eyes when we're suffering in this way, Lord? Open your eyes and come, for we are your people. Oh, what a prayer this was. And if we could only gather up a little bit of this passion and this urgency as we come to pray for our nation, the real battle for our land and for the future of our land, will not be won in the law courts nor in the halls of Parliament. That battle will be won by God's people on their knees seeking God. That's where the battle is won. That's where the struggle is. And that's where the victory will be accomplished in prayer. And may God give us that type of praying and a real zeal and a real urgency for prayer. I was reading just last week about our early Presbyterian ancestors who came to Ulster in the early 17th century. And sometimes we are inclined to think that our ancestors were great people, noble people. There was a Presbyterian minister, in fact, there was a number of Presbyterian ministers who came to minister to those early plantation settlers. But there's a man by the name of Andrew Stewart who became the minister in Donacadee. And he wrote about the character of the planters who came from Scotland. And he said this, and from Scotland came many, and from England not a few, yet all of them generally the scum of both nations, who for debt or breaking or fleeing from justice or seeking shelter came hither. It was a way, and I have to describe the people, the scum of both nations. He said the very worst of England and Scotland, they came to escape debt or to flee from justice or to seek shelter. That's why they came. And that was the character of the first planters who came here. But those people were highly favored because the very best of the Scottish Presbyterian ministers came as well, followed them to preach to them. And the reason why they came was because they were persecuted so much in Scotland, and they had taken a stand for God in Scotland. They were forced out, and so they came to Ulster where they preached. And as these godly ministers preached Christ, revival came. 
And it began an old stone just outside Antrim in 1625. The fire spread through the counties of Antrim and down. And another Scottish Presbyterian minister, the Reverend Robert Blair of Bangor, he wrote of the showers of blessing that came. He said, and indeed, preaching and praying were so pleasant in those days. And hearers so eager and greedy that no day was long enough nor any room great enough to answer their strong desires and large expectations. Oh, what a day that would be. No day would be long enough nor any room great enough because of the people gathering to hear the Word of God. Andrew Stewart, he talked about what he saw in those days. And again, I quote, For the hearer, finding condemned by the mouth of God speaking in his word, fell into such anxiety and terror of conscience that they looked on themselves as altogether lost and damned. And this work appeared not in one single person or two, but multitudes were brought to understand their way and to cry out, Men and brethren, what shall we do to be saved? I have seen them myself stricken into a faint with the word, ye a dozen in one day carried out of doors as dead. So marvelous was the power of God smiting their hearts for sin, condemning and killing. And 200 years later, the Presbyterian historian James Seton Reid, he said that the fame of this revival had attracted a lot of attention in Scotland, in England, in America as well it was being talked about, and throughout the whole of that century, and the following century, it was regarded as one of the greatest examples of a visitation of the Spirit of God, with which the church has been rarely favored. And that was the roots of Presbyterianism in Ulster, born the revival. It didn't come about because James I decided to have a plantation. Those people couldn't have done anything. It came about because of what God did. It was his work. And that's the need of the hour for today, is for revival. Therefore, let us pray that God would do this again. Arise for our help and redeem us for thy mercy's sake. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. God can turn the tide of history. God can change the conversation of a nation in just a moment when his spirit comes down. So let's pray earnestly and be encouraged to pray that God would come and visit.